Well, it's great to see you guys. Great to be back with you again tonight. Um, studying the scriptures together, deepening our friendships together. It's a, it's, it's a joy. We're going to be back in 1 John tonight, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Uh, 1 John. We'll be getting into the first few verses of this uh, beautiful letter tonight. First John. Death. It's a word that we humans do not like to hear. It's uh, one way that we try to avoid. And for a while at least, it seems that we can avoid it, especially in this age demographic. Because of our Modern medical achievements over the last few centuries, we're living much longer than we used to live. That's a good thing. The average lifespan in America has almost doubled from the 1800s, increasing from late 30s to early 80s. And unless you're a healthcare worker, you're, you're likely rarely faced with death in day-to-day life. People typically don't die in their homes much anymore, like was common 100 years ago for the rest of human history. They die in hospitals, away from the day-to-day public life. We don't even like to really talk about death that much in our culture. And when we do, we usually use words like expire, or they're resting now, or they've passed away. Undertakers are called funeral directors. Graveyards are called memorial gardens. And just generally, in our our culture, we we like to avoid death. But we all know something deep down, that death is absolutely unavoidable. It's incurable. It's not a disease that has an antidote. But why can't we cure death? Well, that question is actually asked a lot, and it's it's asked a lot in these days, in particular, as we're faced with COVID around the clock and America pulling out of Afghanistan and and all kinds of, of crazy circumstances. Why can't we cure it? Why don't we have a solution? Well, here's what one PhD in organic chemistry said. He said, we can't cure death because biology is extremely complicated. I think people see the products of modern technology, such as the International Space Station, cars, computers, smartphones, skyscrapers, etc., and think that we're pretty sophisticated. Many people feel like we should have a cure for cancer, and some people even invent conspiracies about pharmaceutical companies hiding the cure. I can understand to some extent why people feel this way. The modern world is an awesome place. Unfortunately, when it comes to biology, we're still in the dark. One of the unsolved fundamental questions in science is, what is the origin of life? We don't even fully understand how a single cell organism works. While the International Space Station and things like that are impressive accomplishments, their complexity is several orders of magnitude less than even the most simple organism. If we can't understand the basic questions about how a single cell organism works, how are we going to manipulate the fundamental processes that govern trillions of cells working in unison? That we have as many drugs and treatments as we do is the result of generations of scientists poking around in the dark until luckily stumbling on a drug or underlying mechanism of disease. Thus, the reason we haven't cured death is because we don't really understand life. That's profound coming from a a PhD chemist. But we know the answers, don't we? The origin of life comes from God, our self-existent creator. 
He has, as John says, life in himself in John 5. He has life in himself. He is the living God, as he's described in the Old and New Testaments. When he created humanity, when he created Adam, the text says he breathed his very breath of life into him, and Adam became a living soul, a living being. Genesis 2.7 We were created by God. We were given life from Him. And what we see in the opening chapters of Genesis is life, life from God, means fellowship. An incredibly profound relationship with God in the garden, partnership with Him in taking dominion of the world that He created. And it also meant fellowship with other people. Adam was given a wife and they became one flesh, a profound union together. They were tasked to take dominion together. So in the beginning, life flowed from God, from His Word in the fullest sense. That's the origin of life, and and we know it from these early chapters of, of Genesis. But we also know the origin of death, too, don't we? Death isn't something that can be cured. Why? Because death is a consequence of something else. Death is the consequence of sin. Death is part of our punishment for our rebellion against the life-giving God. And that's because there's no life outside of God. There's no life outside of trusting Him. There's no life outside of dependence upon Him. When human beings, when we sinned, there was a breach. When we sinned in Adam, we were severed from the branch, so to speak. We thought we could exist apart from God, who is our life, in whom we exist. We thought we could exist independent of God, but that was a lie. It was a fantasy. Sin disrupted our fellowship with God and it severed our relationship with others. We were removed from the garden, from the tree of life, and from God's life-giving presence in Genesis 4. And that is why our bodies decay. We might eat clean. We might take care of ourselves. We might even work out. We might get vaccinated or not vaccinated, depending on your opinion on that. But we can't prevent death. You will succumb to disease and frailty, and eventually your body will give out. You won't be able to to defy or escape the words of the living God who said, To dust you shall return. And you'll return there alongside of every other human being who has ever lived. Well, every human except one. One human who has come has not been held by death. In the opening of our letter, John calls him the word of life, meaning he is God's word, he is his agent of creation that brings about life in its fullest sense. John also calls him, just quite simply, the life. And then a few sentences later, the eternal life. And in these opening verses, his message is about life. Life regained, life opened and offered again. John's message hinges on the one who has overcome death and now lives in an eternal and glorified body, never to decay again. His message is about the one who offers this life, a life that can begin even now, that can grow now, and can be realized in its fullest sense in the resurrection. In a word, it's about eternal life. Life that comes through Christ and only through the Christ that John proclaims. And if you remember back to last week, you'll you'll recall that as, as John writes this letter, as John proclaims this Christ, 
He's writing to a church that's in crisis. Remember that? Some within this church had begun to twist the gospel. They were beginning to teach something different about Christ than John had taught them. They were perverting the way of life. They were unsettling those who had followed John. And even though they had left the church, they were still plaguing the church. They were still seeking to influence through their dangerous teachings. The church was rattled and left in doubt about whether or not the gospel they had heard from John was true. Could this gospel really be relied upon for life, for resurrection life, for confidence as we pass through death? There's a being oversold. So as John begins his letter here, as he begins to write this opening paragraph, he wants to assure these Christians, even from his very first words, he wants to make sure that we realize that what John proclaims, and will continue to proclaim in this letter, is the truth. It's the truth about Christ. It's the truth about His gospel. It is the path to life And he wants us to fully embrace it. So in these opening verses, John's initial goal is to persuade us, we could say, to fully embrace the message. To fully embrace his message. To stake our lives on his message. To radically reorient around what he proclaims, or to say it negatively, to not get off track into idolatry, into a twisted gospel, into a pseudo-Christ. So he's going to tell us a little bit more about his message of life. He's going to describe it for us in these opening verses. And I think these descriptions function like reasons. Reasons to embrace his message. I think John's trying to motivate us, as the reader, to embrace what he's going to say. And to reject the message of false teachers or these pseudo-therapeutic gospels or whatever they may be floating around in our day. So from this passage, we're going to draw out at least five reasons tonight that we've got to embrace John's letter. Five reasons that we have to embrace John's letter. Or we could say it, five reasons we, we, we have to um, follow the Christ of John's letter. And I think he's motivating us to do that tonight in the, the opening text. So let's read it together. Make a few comments, and then we'll jump in. John writes in chapter 1, verse 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So, in this text, we're going to look at five reasons we've got to embrace His letter. Now, as we read these opening verses... I don't know if you're like me and you kind of get a little bit lost as we're reading them. Like there's some, there's some interesting features of this, of this opening, these opening verses. We thought it was a little bit hard to track along with John. Like, what, what's he saying? Like, we don't normally talk like this. The grammar's a little bit odd for our ears, so I'm going to do something kind of nerdy, but I'm going to break it down for you on, uh, on our PowerPoint, or we're going to try. We'll see what it looks like. I think we're okay. So just as we're getting into it, I want you to see what's going on in this text so that you can understand that everything's sort of cycling around this proclamation of of what's happening. Let me show you visually how it breaks down. So he starts in verse 1. Can you see that? Is that micro font? Sorry. The whole thing's going to be full by the end of it, so just hang with me. So he starts these clauses in in verse 1 that are called... They're called headless clauses because it's that which was from the beginning. It starts that way. And he stacks them up. That which we heard. That which we have seen with our eyes. That which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So he stacks them up and you're kind of waiting on some sort of resolution. 
And that, that resolution doesn't come until verse 3. Okay? So it, verse 2, it kind of we're going to skip it, and I want you to see where that resolution comes in verse 3. Whoa. Man, that was uh, anticlimactic. All right. Verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, so you, can, you see he repeats himself. He picks it back up from what he said in verse 1. Then you find the main verb of, the entire, of this entire section, which is, we proclaim also to you. So you could say it in reverse. We proclaim to you that which was from the beginning, that which we heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, we looked upon. You see what I'm saying? So the, all those clauses in verse 1 are actually dependent on the verb in verse 3. They're the objects of, of, that, of that main verb. And then verse 2 is sort of sandwiched in between there, which is what you guys already got the sneak peek of here. Verse 2, which says, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. It's, it's not really grammatically dependent. Basically, what John does is he, you see the word of life up there in that final, that final clause in verse 1? He picks up on that idea of life, and then he begins to expand it. We're going to talk about all this, but I just want you to see what's happening. Verse 2 isn't necessarily part of the grammar, verses 1 and 3. It's sort of sandwiched in between is, is a kind of climax of John's thought here. This idea of, of Jesus being the life, and that's what he proclaims. Now, why am I showing you all this? My point in showing you this is to realize that these verses have to do with what John is proclaiming. In other words, it has to do with his message. And in particular, the Christ of his message and how he frames him up in this opening. And like we said, the way he writes is to build confidence in the message. To persuade us to embrace this letter fully. And why we should. So these descriptions function like motivations or reasons that we should embrace what John's going to write to us in, in 1 John. And there are um, essentially five of them. So we're going to come back to this. We're going to come back to this slide in a bit. But there are essentially five reasons that we need to embrace John's message that we can draw, kind of draw from this text. And the first reason that we should embrace his message is that it's an ancient and unchanging <coughs> message. His message is an ancient and unchanging one. John says here, he opens with his first clause and he says, that which was from the beginning. That which was from the beginning. So John opens the letter by reminding us that the gospel he preaches, this message about Christ, it hasn't changed over time. <clears throat> it's from the beginning. But that raises a question, doesn't it? What does he mean uh, from the beginning? The beginning of what? Well, I think the more I'm interacting with John, the more I'm recognizing that John likes to throw things out there and make you think about them. <clears throat> and the same is true about the way he starts this letter. At the very least, okay, what John's saying here is, is the message today is the same message that you heard back at the beginning, back at your conversion from me and from the other apostles. It's the same message that we receive from the Lord. Later on in the letter, John's going to use this, the, the phrase, this same way. In chapter 2, verse 7, he says, Beloved, I do not write to you a new command, but an old command, which you had from the beginning. You hear that? You've had this command, I'm writing to you, from the beginning. The beginning of what? Well, he's referring to the beginning of their Christian lives. And they first heard the gospel. And I think here, at a minimum, he's getting at the same idea. The gospel hasn't changed from when they first heard it. But is that all John's saying here? As I've been studying him, I've, I've noticed that he likes to layer meaning in his phrases. <clears throat> now, what do I mean by that? Well, just give you a quick aside. In his gospel, he's talking about how Judas betrays Jesus. And he's, he's given this whole this whole thing, and he says he did it at night. 
And just on the face of it, if that's all I told you, you'd say, well, that's just an interesting detail. Okay, he, that, he's giving us the, the time frame. But when you realize what John's doing, if you go all the way back to the beginning and you look at these themes through John, you realize night and day are significant. Night is always associated with sin, darkness, deceit. And so he's layering his meaning here. He's, he's giving you something on the face of it, saying, yes, this happened at night, but there's something more significant about this. I think something similar, it's a bit different, but something similar is going on here. This, in this phrase, I think John has a twinkle in his eyes as he writes it. Yes, the gospel is the same one they first heard, but it's also more profoundly from the beginning because it's about Christ. This phrase echoes his gospel, in particular, the opening verse of his gospel in John 1.1. And I don't think it's a coincidence that he starts them both in the same way. Listen to how he opens his gospel. He says, In the beginning was the Word. First verse. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus himself is described here as existing in the beginning, meaning that he has existed eternally. He's described as God's word in John 1.1. As God's word there, he is the agent of God's first creation. Remember how God created? He created by his word. He spoke, and it came into being. And so John is using this same idea and referring that to Christ, saying Christ was the preexistent son, the agent of God's creation then, and the agent point of John, the gospel of John, is that he is the agent of the new creation. The agent of the new creation that's coming now. And I think John opens in a similar way here in his letter because he wants us to make this connection back to his gospel and back to Jesus as, as the new creation, the, 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 the agent of the new creation. And in case you think I'm reading into this, later on in the letter, in this letter, 1 John, John describes Jesus using this same phrase. In chapter 2, verse 12, he calls Jesus him who is from the beginning. Um, he says, I'm writing to you fathers, in verse 13, excuse me, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. He's referring to Christ. So yes, this message, John's, this message that John's proclaiming is the same one that the church first heard. But it's also more than that. It's an eternal message because it's about the eternal Son of God, the Son who brought the world into being, the Son who is the agent of the new creation. We'll talk more about that in a second. But just, I think, right out of the gate, do you see how this, this ups the ante in, in the context that John's writing in? The false teachers were teaching something different about Christ, something contrary to what John is taught. And John's not only saying they're disagreeing with him, they are, but they're in, in, in danger of both diverging from the gospel as it was once delivered to them, and even greater, they're trying to change the teaching about the eternal Christ, the ancient one, Christ Jesus himself. And so what does this mean for us? Okay? Cool for their day, but what about for us? Well, this letter that you hold in your hand, its very first words claims that its message is a message of life, an ancient and unchanging message. Why? Because it is about the preexistent Christ. That means that in the church, uh, new is not necessarily good, okay? We want what is old. We want what is unchanging. We want teaching that's rooted in the eternal counsel of God. And that's exactly what John's claiming that his letter is all about. It stands in that lineage and trajectory. So, implication is we should listen up to what he's going to say. So that's the first reason, but it's only the start. Not only is, is what John proclaims ancient and unchanging, but he is also, he's also personally experienced 
the message. We could say it like this. We need to embrace John's message because he experienced it. This message was experienced firsthand by the apostles, by John himself. And that's what he's getting at in these next phrases. He says, That which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. We must embrace John's message because it was experienced firsthand by the apostles. John's essentially saying something like this. Church, we have experienced him. We heard about him, and then we heard him personally. We heard what he taught. We heard how he explained the Old Testament. We heard how he spoke with authority. We listened to it all. And not only that, but we saw him. We saw him silence storms. We watched him dominate demons. We saw him feed thousands. We took note of how he poured himself out in ministry to other people beyond what was humanly possible. We even watched him breathe his last breath. We saw the empty tomb. And we saw him after he was raised. But you have to understand, we didn't just see him, like with our eyes. We observed, and that's that next word, we observed his significance. We got it, at least eventually we got it. It took us a little while. But he brought us, he brought us to understand what his death means. Not just the fact that he died but the significance of it and the implications of his resurrection for all who would follow him. He has given us his spirit. He's opened our hearts to understand, to truly see. And the last thing I'll say here, church, we even touched him like we would touch any other human being. Even though he was God, he took on human flesh. He became one of us to rescue us. He wasn't simply a spirit church. He was fully man in every sense of the word. We embraced him. Now, obviously, I elaborated here a little bit beyond some of these verses, but I think you get the point. You can hear how these verbs that John's using are growing in intensity and significance. He heard, then he saw then he observed, i.e. got the significance, and he even touched. And speaking of touching, that seems kind of weird or out of place, or thinking of handling Jesus, John made sure he noted that. Because one aspect of the false teaching that was floating around is that the Messiah didn't really have a physical body. May have looked that way, but he didn't have one. The Messiah was spiritual, he didn't come in the flesh. But John says he did. And he claims to have even touched him. And here's the point. John, the writer of the letter that you're holding in your hands, or on your phones, or your iPads, or whatever they are, that letter claims to have actually, the author of that letter claims to have actually experienced all of this firsthand. This isn't a fairy tale. And he's experienced it along with the other apostles. It changed his life forever. It's real, he says. It's sure. And so that's reason to listen, reason to believe, reason to stake our lives upon this message that we're going to see in 1 John. He has experienced it firsthand along with the other apostles. And John's going to go on to give us yet another incredible reason why we've got to embrace the message. 
We have to embrace this message because it's about resurrection life. John's message, the message of this letter, has at its heart resurrection life. He says, we've seen with our eyes, we've looked upon with and we've touched with our hands. All of this is concerning, end of verse 1, is concerning the word of life. Now notice verse 2. The life was made manifest. We've seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. We've got to embrace his message because it's about resurrection life. His message concerns our fundamental need. It concerns what every human being on the planet is grasping for in their blindness. It concerns what we lost in the garden in Adam. Our need for life. Our need for resurrected life. And John says his message is not simply about the life that we need, but it's that Jesus is the life that we need. And he makes this point in a, in a few different phrases here that all have to do with life. So I'm going to go back to our other, our other screen here. Notice that initially he calls Jesus the word of life. So do you see that up there at the end of, end of verse 1? It's concerning the word of life. So what's he, what's he getting at here? Well, if we remember back to John's gospel, like we talked about just a moment ago, Jesus is described as the word there too. And this image is full of Old Testament significance. In the Old Testament, the word was God's agent of creation. God created everything. He gave life to everything by his word, by speaking. And calling Jesus the Word then means that He's God's agent of creation. He's God's agent of creation life in this case. He's God's agent that gives new life to dead humans. I think that's the, the idea of the phrase. He gives this life to humans who had previously walked in darkness, and now He shines light upon them. He makes them alive again as God's creative Word. Well, how can He do that? Well, this is where it gets really exciting, if it wasn't exciting enough. He's not just God's agent. He is the life itself. And you see that in verse 2. He is life itself. John almost can't contain himself here. And so he breaks the grammar and he launches into the, <laughs> what we put as the yellow, yellow font there on the screen. He breaks grammar, he changes metaphors, calling Jesus not the Word, but now calling Him the life. And he says the life was manifested. So what's he talking about there? The life was manifested. He's talking about the resurrection of Christ. Now how do I know that? <clears throat> well, a clue that we have is this word manifest here. We chase that word down in John's writings. John's going to use this word, manifest, regularly for Jesus revealing himself. So you could say, okay, he reveals himself. He revealed himself in Cana before his resurrection. Use that word, yeah. But what's super interesting is he uses this word to talk about the revelation of himself to his disciples after his resurrection. After his resurrection, as the one who had overcome death with life. If you have it, just keep your finger here and turn over to John 21. John 21, you see this <clears throat> come up in a couple places. Notice this in, in uh, this is after the resurrection. It says, after this Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. That's that verb, revealed himself. So it says he revealed himself again. So that means, in chapter 20, 
Jesus was doing some revealing. So chapter 20 talks about the resurrection. Midway through chapter 20 in verse 11, Jesus reveals himself to Mary Magdalene. Then in verse 19 of chapter 20, he reveals himself to the disciples. And notice this in verse 20. When he had said this, this is chapter 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so even I am sending you. When he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now skip down to verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, who was called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Well, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And that's the context of verse 1 of chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples. So it's very interesting that Jesus, to Thomas and the other disciples, holds himself out to be handled after the resurrection, to prove his, his bodily resurrection to them. He'll go on in chapter 21, I think it's verse 14, to use the same verb again. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So for John, if you flip back to 1 John, when he calls Jesus the life and says that that life was revealed or manifested, what would be the first thing it would be in John's mind for, for us to make, that, to make a connection? The resurrection life of Jesus. We have another clue that John's talking about the resurrection down toward the end of this verse. He calls Jesus, down here, into verse 2, the eternal life. Meaning, eternal, meaning unending, life. Life that characterizes the new creation. The kind of spring of life that we say every human being is seeking, but can't ever seem to find on their own. And in fact, they cannot find on their own. So how does all this impact us? What are we getting at here? When John calls Jesus the life, He's signaling that Jesus has accomplished what we could never do. As the life, Jesus has obtained what we lost, what we forfeited. Not only did he die for our sins, he did that. But he was also raised for us. And that means that all who receive him, all who receive John's message, embrace it. They receive this life, Christ's life, as a gift from Him. It means it's unearned by you. Jesus has accomplished it for you as the second Adam. We have the certain hope of resurrection on that final day, not because of you, but because of what Jesus has done. Embracing Jesus' life-giving message then frees us from the ultimate fear of death. It frees us from all those lesser fears, like the fear of missing out on something in this life, or the, the fear of contracting COVID, or the fear of Islam, or the fear of anything else. We gain tremendous hope, resurrection hope for the future, and that's why we must embrace John's message. We must stake our lives upon it and learn to live by it because it, life comes through this message. 
And the, the really glorious thing is that eternal life in and through Jesus begins now. It begins internally. John's going to tell us later, later that, that believers have passed from death to life now, before the final resurrection. And do you know what new life means? Think back to the garden. New life means re-entrance into the garden. It means re-entrance into God's favor. It means re-entrance into his presence, or as John says it next, re-entrance into fellowship. And that leads us to our fourth reason that we must embrace his message. Is because John's message secures intimate fellowship. It secures intimate fellowship. Notice in verse 3, he picks it back up. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. Why? In order that you might have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We must embrace John's message. Because if and when we do, Christ secures us re-entrance into fellowship. Fellowship with others and fellowship with God himself. And this is a sweet theme through the Gospel of John. And I wish, kind of wish we could preach John, then come to 1 John, preach that, because that would be a great background. We're not going to do that. I'll try to draw out some themes for you as we go, but as we learn to live by, by this message, by John's message, that fellowship only gets sweeter and sweeter. It only gets deeper and more profound, more fruitful, more vibrant over time. And it's up and down, but it, it grows. And that's because through Christ, to use another of John's metaphors, we are reconnected to the vine now. That starts now. We're restored back in a dependent relationship with our Creator. Our rebellion is fully and finally forgiven. Our heinous sins completely cleansed forever. Our darkened hearts enlightened and renewed forever. God's face is ever toward us in favor and in fellowship, not because of us, because of Him, because of Christ, our life. So what exactly is he talking about with this word fellowship? I don't know about you, when we think of fellowship, all kinds of things come to our minds, from the Super Bowl party, Afterglow to a potluck. And those are good things. But fellowship is biblically incredibly profound. Incredibly profound. And so if you want to think about what fellowship means at its core, what does this word have at its core? So if you see this, you kind of track this word throughout the New Testament, you're going to see it used in widely different contexts. But fellowship at its core has the idea of sharing. Sharing. If you just want one word to tag onto it, tag onto that. Sharing. That's the common denominator in all the various contexts that this word's used. And in this context, the foundational idea here is sharing in intimate relationship or sharing in intimate friendship. So that means God, in and through Christ, is beckoning us into a relationship with himself and a relationship with others in the church. In fact, this is the heart of eternal life. It's what's going to transcend now to then. It's why it can start now, even before we're raised from the dead. God has brought us, he's brought me into union with him and into union with other believers. And now he wants me to commune with him and to commune with others. 
And that's the idea of fellowship, a sharing in this relationship. Now just think about that for a minute. Do you realize that if God saved you, he saved you for a relationship? Not just to get out of hell, as incredible as that is, but he saved you for a relationship. He saved you so that you can really know him. Really know him. And know him more deeply than all your friends, best friends, more deeply than your closest human relationships. And vice versa. The Lord Jesus already knows you fully. He already knows you completely including the blackness of your sin. And yet, he is delighted to have you pour your heart out to him, to converse with him, and to share of himself with you, to reveal himself to you through his word, operating through the spirit, as you sit in preaching, as you sit in times like this, as you open your Bible in your own private time, as you meditate, as you recall truth to mind, he delights to reveal himself to you as your friend. That's communion. That's sharing. That's fellowship. A mutual giving and receiving from the Lord. And this is the great end for which you've been saved. And like, like we've said, this, this fellowship's not just with God alone, but it's for fellowship with his body, with each other, the bride of Christ, the church. This means that we have the potential as Christians to have some of the most glorious and profound relationships on the planet with each other. You guys and your friendships with each other and with, your, with friendships with your leaders and people in this church have the potential for limitless joy as we learn to love each other, as we learn to lay our lives down for each other, as we learn to commune with one another. And that's what God wants. That's why He has saved us. That's what true life, eternal life means at its essence. It's the result of embracing what John's going to say and what he does say in this letter, of receiving what he proclaims about Christ. These kinds of things are the result. Now, we could, I could talk about this for a long time, but we're running late on time. We've just scratched the surface on this theme of fellowship and communion with God and communion with one another. But, as my son would say, do you know what the glad thing is? Uh, the glad thing is that the rest of this letter is essentially about this theme. It's about how to enhance our communion with God. It's about how to live in relationships with each other in love. The rest of this letter is essentially unpacking this idea of fellowship, but it does it in different language, which is helpful. So we're going to have a chance to explore it in depth and from different angles in weeks to come. But for now, the goal of, this, uh, the goal of, of greater fellowship with God and with others is to motivate us. Let that motivate you to press in to the message of 1 John. And that leads us to our final reason, and we're just going to mention it here. We need to embrace John's message because it leads to completed joy. It leads to completed joy. That's what he says here in verse 4. We are writing these things so that our joy may be completed. The essence of fellowship with God and with others, when that's happening... And there's unity, community, union. The essence of that, John says, is the completion of joy. It's Christ's own joy. The Apostle John wanted more of that. Here, that's why he's writing. He wanted more of that. He knows that his fellowship grows as it's strengthened, as, as sheep are kept away from following false Christs, as they're protected from idolatry, as they're sinning less, the joy is going to abound. John knows that it will lead to the completion of our joy, just like it did for him. And so let this pursuit of joy, as we're going to see through the rest of this letter, be a huge reason to lean in, study John, verse John here, embrace 
the message by faith. So we're going to end there tonight. That's, that's John's opening to this letter. I'm already super thrilled to study this letter together, and as I was meditating on this this week, it just enhanced that thrill. And um, it's heightened my desire to get into this letter, to see what John has to say, to apply it to our lives. So as we study 1 John together, let these reasons here motivate you to truly believe the letter. Not just study it, not just talk about it, but believe it. The message of this letter is our answer for life, true and eternal. Don't just give mental assent to the letter. Don't just come to Boundless on Thursday and just kind of check the box of, oh yeah, yeah, I I believe that, and then it doesn't impact you at all in the day-to-day. That would be giving mental assent to continue to live in your sin, living the way you've always lived. This letter should alter your life in a positive way. And if that's you, if you're going to continue living in sin, you're just going to give mental assent, that may end up proving you don't yet know the Christ that John is proclaiming in this letter. So allow this Christ, allow the Christ that's offering friendship to his enemies, let him transform you through our study of this letter together. Which is my pastoral appeal to you. John knows that Christ can do that. John knows that he will do that. John's got firsthand experience. He'll do that as one of Christ's own apostles. So let him teach us. Let's pray. Father, we're humbled to have your word. We're humbled to have the pursuit of your love, how you come to us in, when we're dead in sin, to reconcile us to yourself, to commune with us day by day, to deepen our joy, to produce fruit in our lives that lasts into eternity. And all we can do is, is just say thank you to that and, and pray that you help us press in to know you, the depth of your love for us, and to be useful to you now, to be loyal friends to you, um, seeking to advance your mission here on earth. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.